Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wildlife Room. My name is Daniel Perry, and I am here to take you on an adventure across all the continents in search of threatened and endangered animals, big and small. As mentioned in the intro, I am a florist and a greenhouse manager by training, but I have a huge passion for wildlife conservation and wildlife photography, which takes up most of my free time. I have been to the Netherlands and Germany, I've been to South Africa, um, I'm based in New Jersey in the United States, and I have traveled all over my area and even as far as Alaska to photograph wildlife, and this is just something I really care about. Um, this podcast is going to go over um, threatened and endangered animals Again, like I said, anywhere around the world, generally we're going to be doing three species per podcast where I'm going to break down um, a little bit about the species as well as the threats that are hurting them, um, conservation efforts that are being done, as well as places you can go and see these amazing species. The reason I am doing this podcast is to do my part in giving back to wildlife conservation by education. And that's mainly what I've done through Instagram. Um, my account, DJP Wildlife Photography, is where I post all my photography and a tool that I use to try and show the beauty of nature to anybody that I can. But this takes us a step forward by me getting a little bit more in-depth into the education of these animals. Things that you can't list out all these different things on Instagram, or else people aren't going to really read it. People want to see a pretty picture and generally want a little blurb. Tell you what it is. For the camera enthusiasts, I like to tell them what I use, what camera I use, and that just helps bring in a, a varied audience in the pretty pictures affect people that just like to see pictures and especially animal pictures um, the camera information brings in the more technical people who like to see what I'm using and what I'm doing and together it just creates this awareness of a species but doesn't really get into the education and and the learning about the species that I can do more in a verbal podcast like this. And to start off the podcast, I really want to delve into three species that I think are hard hitters in terms of the wildlife conservation field, would probably be the best way to describe it. Um, generally, they aren't going to be as big hitters every single time. I'm going to try and work in uh, the little stuff as well, things that people really might not know a lot about. Um, but for this first episode, we are going to cover the African bush elephant, polar bears, and Bornean orangutans. I think, respectively, they really represent poaching, climate change, and habitat destruction, which are the three main threats we see facing the wildlife around the world. And I think these three just are really, really, really good examples of each one. So without further ado, come in, sit down, and welcome to the Wildlife Room. To start us off, we are going to be traveling to the savannah in Africa, where we will ta first take a look at the African bush elephant. Loxodonta africana. 
They are the largest land, at, land animals in the world with their shoulder height of about 2.1 to 3.4 meters, 7 to 11 feet for you U.S. kids out there, length up to 7.6 meters, 24 feet, a weight up to 5,500 kilograms or 12,000 pounds, a lifespan of 60 to 70 years, gestation of 22 months. ICUN currently has these elephants listed as endangered. Uh, the physical features of these elephants include a smooth bump on the top of their forehead. Um, when you look at their side profile, you see a back dip in the middle of their back, and their tusks are curved upwards and grow outwards away from each other. And these can be found in various habitats, mainly the savanna, across most of Africa. So what makes elephants important? Well, at first, they're a keystone species. A keystone species refers to any species that, without them, the whole ecosystem would fall apart. Imagine an archway, and at the very top is what they refer to as the keystone, because if you take that out, the whole arch would just collapse on itself. The African bush elephant just balances the natural ecosystems around them, trampling trees and dense grasses to create an open savanna, allowing a habitat for many, many species. Um, as well as during the dry months of the year, they will dig holes with their tusks in dried up riverbeds, and that creates almost a little watering hole that allows them to drink and also allows smaller species within the area to drink. Um, the other thing that is more seen in the in the African forest elephant than the African bush elephant, but still exists within the African bush elephant, is the seed dispersal techniques. A lot of animals will pick up fruit, eat the fruit, and then through the process of digesting the fruit, will break open um, the seed's hard outer layer that when they uh, release the seeds back into the environment allows them to germinate and start growing into new plant species. Poaching is the main threat of these elephants, and what they're being poached for is ivory, which is what their tusks are made out of. Um, now, ivory is used for many things, jewelry, ornaments, piano keys, billiard and pool balls, and just general knickknacks. Um, one kilogram of ivory costs about 115 US dollars, and one tusk averages about 23 kilograms, so you're looking at roughly $5,300 per pair of tusks you have. Um, and that just plays a huge role into the fact that we're talking about relatively impoverished countries, and a way to make money would be poaching elephants and making $5,300 per elephant. Um, looking at a conservation timeline, we look back to the 1500s where you have the first exp exploration um, through Africa, and that counts roughly 26 million African bush elephant individuals. Um, you then jump ahead to 1913 where they count roughly 10 million individuals, and you have a U.S. consumption of 200 individuals per year. 
you look to the 1950s and see that you're averaging about 250 individuals poached per day. In the 1970s, you have CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, and that was entered into force as well as the Endangered Species Act within the United States, which allowed ivory trade but had very, very strict guidelines. In 1979, you see a population count of 1.3 million individuals, so that's a 9 million individual loss over just 70 years. Um, throughout the 1980s, you averaged about 100,000 deaths per year, which in 1989 would bring the population down to 600,000 individuals, and you get an international ivory ban throughout the whole world. Um, in the early 2000s, you had one-off sales of ivory stockpiles that were collected, um, and that hoped to lessen um, prices by just flooding the market with the ivory and causing a basically less, less price a less less of a cost to the ivory which would make it less appealing to kill because it's not as much worth it um i'm sorry that probably didn't make too much sense but one-off sales lessened prices which made it less desirable to poach um through 2009 and 2013 you see a net decline in individuals with 2012 population count being 415,000 individuals. Um, in 2012, you also have the Cameroon Massacre, where you see 200 elephants slaughtered within one month in one area um, by armed horsemen allegedly from Sudan, um, who would have traveled hundreds of kilometers just to poach these elephants. Um, nothing's been proven on that yet, though. Um, 2016, CITES bans all domestic ivory sales, so you can't do it within your own countries now anymore. And the last population count you have is in 2018, which is, again, 415,000 individuals. So you see, between 2012 and 2018, a steady population, but you don't see a increase which is what you'd hopefully say now we start looking into the conservation efforts for this animal and as you've probably seen there are multiple agencies that collect funds to help these animals um, whether it be the wwf the wcs the awf the ief just a lot of alphabet soup a lot of acronyms and it's hard to see where the money really goes. Um, since you're seeing it, a lot of money will go into advertising fees. Um, there are corporate fees to keep the people who are doing the job paid and doing the job. Um, but you do see good effects on the ground in Africa. And that's through anti-poaching units who will just patrol around wildlife areas making sure nothing nefarious is going on and a lot of the time doing a lot of snare removal now the snares don't necessarily 
but they're not really aimed for the elephants. A lot of snares are aimed for bushmeat, which we'll talk about in other species, but that's mainly just a way of food source for some of these impoverished people, and they just set snares to catch whatever they can to eat. An elephant steps in it, it injures its foot, it injures its foot, it can't walk, it can't move as fast, and it can't keep up and it dies. Um, you also have creation of wildlife reserves throughout Africa, trying to rewild places that have been taken away from the wild, um, as well as just general elephant monitoring, making sure populations are healthy, sustainable, and just overall in good shape. You also have um, two... I don't want to say corporations, because they're not corporations. Two on-the-ground places that help elephants as their sole purpose. You have the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, and that was founded in 1977, and that's located in Nairobi, Kenya. They have rescued over 200 elephants to be rehabilitated and released back into the wild, in which they've released 100 and have had actually 25 calves born to released elephants um, that they have rehabilitated. So that's really good news. Uh, you also have the Herd Elephant or Orphanage, um, Herd being an acronym for Hoodsproit Elephant Rehabilitation and Development. Um, that's the first dedicated elephant orphanage within South Africa, and it's located on the Kapama Game Reserve. And they have a herd there that's called the Jabulani Herd, and they play a real integral role in the rehabilitation and release of these orphaned elephants because generally wild populations will not accept orphans. If you release an orphan into a herd, they will not be accepted. This Jabulani herd is made of a majority of orphans. A lot of them were orphaned and have been released, and they are very accepting of orphans coming back into the herd. Now we get to talk about one of my favorite parts and something that I love to do, and that's travel and just general tourism. And we're going to see where we can go to see these elephants. Well, they're widespread across Africa. There's many national parks and wildlife reserves that you can go see an African bush elephant. So I'm just going to highlight a few that have um, a little bit different things to them that make it not just seeing an elephant. Um, first, we're going to talk about Chobe National Park, which is located in Botswana. And the reason I bring them into this is they just have the largest population uh, within Africa. There's roughly 125,000 African bush elephants in that national park, um, which, as we talked about before, with 415,000 being their total population. That's a very, very big chunk located in one national park. And I'm probably going to butcher this next place, but next we're looking at Nhotokata, N-K-H-O-T-A-K-O-T-A, -O -O Wildlife Reserve, and that's in Malawi. 
Um, this is the site that's famously known for Prince Harry's 500 Elephants Initiative, and that was something that he helped spearhead, which translocated 500 elephants to a near-empty forest that everything was driven out of there, um, but now seems to be teeming with life because of the reintroduction, and is widely considered one of the most successful translocation conservation efforts so far. Next, we're going to go to Kenya, and that's Amboseli National Park, uh, where we have one of a very few populations that are relatively undisturbed by human behavior. Um, being thoroughly studied and researched is one of the most important things at this site because of the fact that they are pretty undisturbed. Um, and photography-wise, just my little personal bit is that you can get a great backdrop of Mount Kilimanjaro photographing here, and seeing an elephant with a white peak to mountain in the back is just crazy. Um, lastly, we're going to head back south and go back to um, Zimbabwe, which we will visit at Mana Pools National Park. Um, this is really interesting because it's one of the only places that you see the natural behavior of elephants standing up on their hind legs, something that is generally thought of zoos um, when you hear that, elephants standing on their back legs. But this is done naturally during the dry season because most of the vegetation um, low enough to reach is gone. Um, already eaten, and they have to just stretch on their back legs to just reach up as high into the trees as they can to get something to eat. Um, and this is something that you've seen passed on from previous generations, so nothing that's been introduced. This is just a natural behavior of theirs in the wild. And that will finish up African bush elephants. Um... Yeah, so that's a nice, nice overlook of of that species, and I guess we will move on into polar bears next. See you after this. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening. In this little break, I would just like to ask if you would like to follow me along this journey go to DJP Wildlife Photography on Instagram. Again, DJP Wildlife Photography. And that's where you can follow my journey, where I've been, what I'm photographing, and just a bunch of fun photos of animals. Welcome back, everybody. And now the wildlife room is going to go much further north in this world, and we're going to go all the way up to the Arctic and look at polar bears, um, Ursus maritimus. They are listed on IUCN as vulnerable. Um, the length of a polar bear can be anywhere between 1.8 and 2.8 meters, or 6 to 9 feet, um, males can weigh 360 to 600 kilograms or 800 to 1300 pounds and females from 130 to 320 kilograms or roughly 300 to 700 pounds. Um, the habitat of these bears are 
basically the Arctic Ocean, mainly on sea ice um, on top of the ocean, and then in adjacent coastal areas uh, during the summer when there's not as much sea ice around. Um, there are 19 total subpopulations all around the northern polar region, and that just represents the 19 different kind of places you can see them. Um, the lifespan of polar bears is 25 to 30 years. Uh, the gestation would be six and a half to eight and a half months. Um, a fun fact is that they have black skin and they have transparent hair, and that's to help attract heat to them, um, as well as their paws are just under 30 centimeters or 12 inches. That's large. Polar bears are another example of a keystone species um, to the Arctic. They are the top predator and just the apex of the entire ecosystem. Polar bears themselves keep the biological populations in balance. Um, scavengers depend on their carcasses they leave behind once they've caught seals. And if you just look at the balance of populations, a decrease in polar bears would lead to an increase of seals, which would decrease the, crust the crustaceans and fish in the environment, and just causes the whole thing to go out of whack. So the health of the entire Arctic is really dependent on the polar bear. Now we'll move into the threats facing polar bears, and the big hitter for them would be climate change. Um, the overwhelming Overall, overwhelming too, warming of the Arctic will melt sea ice, which is their main habitat, um, and that's where they do most of their hunting and where they are best at hunting, and that really plays an important part because um, they can store a lot of energy over the winter months uh, to survive the hotter and more barren months in the summer and fall and the overall warming of this environment just creates melt just will melt the ice sooner in the spring and then allows ice to form later in the fall i don't know that allows is the right word then causes but just causes a later ice formation in the fall and that can lead to unhealthy bears if they don't stock up on enough food over the winter unhealthy bears is a very bad thing for their overall population because it lowers their reproductive rates and you generally see higher cub mortality in unhealthy bears um, you also have secondary causes which is a uh, big one is pollution um, since they are the highest member of the food chain, they get a more concentrated POP, which is persistent organic pollutions. Um, fish eat mercury, seals eat a lot of fish. Not that, sorry, fish don't eat mercury, but fish eat things that have mercury in them. The seals eat a lot of fish, which causes a higher concentration in the seals. And then the bears eat a lot of seals, which causes a high potency, a high um, concentration of particularly that mercury in the bear. Um, oil exploration also hurts. Um, the effects of oil can ruin a bear's fur, 
and will cause severely reduced insulation um, during the cold months of the year. Um, you also can ingest the um, oil and as well as the oil exploration, exploration having a general disturbance of the bears themselves and creates habitat loss. Um, timeline for the polar bears, you look at pre-1700s where the indigenous people sustainably hunted polar bears. They, they survived together. Um, you look past the 1700s all the way into the 1970s, you just had an unregulated commercial and recreational hunting problem. They were just completely overhunting the polar bears, um, which obviously means poaching is a big problem too, but that was a past problem, and we've kind of corrected the poaching problem, um, but are now looking at a climate change problem. Uh, in fact, in 1973, Canada, the United States, Denmark, Norway, and the former USSR signed an international agreement um, on the conservation of polar bears and their habitat and really strictly um, regulated the commercial hunting. They were also added to the U.S. Endangered Species Act in that year. Um, in 2005, the IUCN upgraded them from least concerned to vulnerable which is never good. In 2012, you see a population of between 20,000 and 25,000 individuals left. Um, in 2013, you see the first international forum on polar bear conservation. And then you look at 2019, where they did an in-depth study of all 19 subpopulations. Well, I shouldn't say all, because eight of them had data deficiency. Um, but you saw four had decreased, two had increased population, and five had stayed roughly the same. Um, they were all turned out to be considered stable, so the decrease wasn't, the four subpopulations that were decreasing, I guess weren't decreasing at an alarming rate, um, but still were decreasing. But a lot of things um, point to a 30% decrease if we continue this way by 2050. So we see numbers going from 20,000 to 12,000, 13,000 in just 40 years if we continue the way we are going. Now we can move into the conservation efforts um, around the polar bear. And the main thing is just protecting their environment. In fact, in 2017, the United States federally protected 115 million acres of federal waters permanently. Cannot be undone. That is theoretically permanently protected. Um, you have to address climate effects from fossil fuels and the greenhouse effect. Um, and you just have to support active polar bear research, which is kind of hard to do. You do have the Polar Bears International Organization, founded in 1994. Seems to be the only organization solely dedicated to wild polar bears. Um, they mainly work through the media and advocacy. Um, they do some scientific research, but it's very hard to do hands-on work with the world's largest bear, um, especially because... Of the winters they have to go through. So this organization relies more heavily on the education side um, than hands-on research. 
Next, you have to look at responsible tourism, and that's a really big thing, is just make sure that you're respecting the animal. You're going into their habitat to see them. You can't do anything damaging. Um, and that brings us to where we can see these beautiful creatures, and the polar bear capital of the world is Churchill, which is in Manitoba, Canada. Um, seems to be the most accessible place to see polar bears because at the end of the summer, the polar bears gather in that spot just waiting for the sea ice to form and allow them to get off land and, and onto the ocean. Um, they also have a really funny thing that's called polar bear jail in order to protect the residents there. Any polar bears that wind up in the town, they will hold in a... Um, containment area until the sea ice forms and they do it very very professionally very respectably to the animal but they also don't want it to be something a polar bear remembers and wants to come back for so it's not like going to the penthouse suite but it's not staying at a motel in the middle of nowhere you also have Wrangell Island, which is on the far east coast of Russia. Um, it's widely considered a polar bear maternity ward because there's over 500 um, female polar bears that go and give birth on this island and is widely regarded as the best place to see cubs. Um, and then the third place that I want to talk about is Svalbard in Norway. Um, very far off the northern coast of mainland Norway. And that gives you kind of the best chance to see a polar bear. Um, I believe it's an 80% success rate of all tours up there actually see a polar bear. Um, and that's because they live there year round. It's, it's, a, it's a big island surrounded by a bunch of little islands and give them a really good place to live. They actually have a higher population on those sets of islands than the humans do. And this is really interesting because the best way to spot polar bears in this area is from a ship. You, you put around on a little dinghy kind of thing and you you see them from from a ship you look onto the shores of these islands and you see if there's a polar bear there otherwise that pretty much ends polar bears and allows us to move uh back south in the world but a little bit east of where we are for the african elephants back after this hello everybody and thank you for listening to this podcast if you are enjoying, please write a review. Leave me a rating on whichever app you are listening to this on. If you're not enjoying, please don't. Um, no, I'm kidding. If there's things that you think I can improve on, please leave me a review. Or talk to me personally. Um, you can either message me on Instagram, which is again DJP Wildlife Photography um, on Instagram, or you can send me an email, which is djpwildlifephotography at gmail.com. Um, otherwise, I just ask if you can pass this along to your friends if you're enjoying it. It just greatens my reach and allows more people to be educated on 
wildlife conservation. Thank you. Welcome back. For the last species of this first podcast, we are going to travel to the third largest island in the world, and that's Borneo. And we are going to be looking at the Bornean orangutan, uh, Pongo pygmaeus. IUCN lists them as critically endangered. Um, Males tend to be 1.2 to 1.4 meters tall, uh, 3.9 to 4.6 feet. And females tend to be 1 to 1.2 meters tall, uh, 3.3 to 3.9 feet. Uh, Males can weigh 50 to 100 kilograms or 110 to 220 pounds. And females can weigh 30 to 50 kilograms, 600 to 110 pounds. Um, They live obviously on the island of Borneo, but more specifically within the rainforests. Uh, They can live up to third sorry, up to 60 years old and have a gestation of 8.5 months. They are considered the heaviest tree-dwelling animal in the world, and allegedly 50% of them have broken bones or have healed breaks from falling out of trees, which I could not find a scientific journal that listed that, but tends to be a widespread fact, which I find pretty funny. Yet again, we're going to be talking about a species that is considered a keystone species, and the Bornean orangutan is actually considered the gardeners of the rainforest. Seed dispersal is a huge factor that they have on the environment around them. Um, They consume a lot of fruit. They are mainly a fruit consumer. And as we talked with elephants, when you digest the seed, it breaks the hard outer layer of the shell and allows germination. Um, So they really help shape and preserve the entire rainforest by spreading all types of different fruiting seeds um, as they travel. Doing this provides the food and the habitat for thousands of other species and really means that saving orangutans save all the coexisting species in which they cohabitate. The main threats that are affecting the Bornean orangutan is really habit habitat destruction. The loss, the degradation, and the fragmentation of the rainforest habitat they live in. Um, a lot of this is because of illegal logging and deforestation for palm oil production as um, it's a great area to grow it, unfortunately. Um, but the botanical side of me says it's actually a really, really good area to grow it, but it can be done sustainably and really, when you're looking at it, should be done sustainably. You also have fires, mining, hunting, and kidnapping, um, which are lesser threats to the population, but still threats. Um, They also have a very slow reproductive rate, and being that plus the fact that they're an arboreal mammal means that it's very, very affected by fragmentation of the rainforest that they live in. Uh, 1758 was the first scientific description of the Bornean orangutan, and in the early 1900s, you roughly see 230,000 individuals. Um, 
between 1996 and 1997, you see a 33% population loss because there was a very large drought and a lot of fires forming from that drought damaged a lot of habitat and even killed um, orangutans directly. Um, you also see in 2000 a rapidly decline declining population due to a lot of habitat loss for agricultural use. Um, in 2016, the IUCN lists this species as critically endangered, um, as well as in 2019, you get official CITES protection for specifically the Bornean orangutan. And then in 2020, you only see a population of around 57,000 individuals. So in 100 years, they lost about 180,000 individuals. Now we can look at the ways to help the Bornean orangutan and the conservation efforts that are out there. And the main thing to do is protect the remaining forest of Borneo. Don't let more deforestation happen. Even allow some of the areas that have been touched and ruined to grow back and a lot of that's done through education of the human inhabitants within the range of the orangutan um, you can also physically relocate individuals that are in immediate danger though this is an extreme step that we really shouldn't need anymore because we should stop putting them in danger um, the other way is to choose food products that that contain sustainable palm oil um, where they get palm oil from sustainable production companies. Um, out there in Borneo itself, you have the Sepalak Rehabilitation Center founded in 1964, and that's in northern Borneo. Uh, this provides medical care for orphaned, injured, and confiscated orangutans, along with other species that cohabit cohabitate with them, and they have rehabilitated and released over a hundred orangutans. Uh, you also have the Nyaru Mentang, or Orangutan Rescue and Rehab Center, which was founded um, in 1999, and that's in the central Kalimantan in Borneo. Uh, mostly rescues orangutans from illegal pet trade, but is widely considered the largest orangutan care center in um, the entirety of Indonesia and have released many orangutans that have had successful wild births in nature. And finally, we will delve into travel and tourism regarding the Bornean orangutan, something I'm actually looking to possibly do next year. Um, and the best place to see them that I've found is the Danum Valley in Sabah, Malaysia, which is on Borneo Island. There's roughly 500 individuals within a 400 square kilometer protected area, and they seem to have good lodges that have resident individuals around them, um, places you can go that they're actually living right near the lodge. You also have Kinabatangan River, which is also in Sabah, Malaysia, and that has protected reserves on both sides of the river and what you do is you just float down the river and when the trees are fruiting you very commonly see orangutans right up on the riverbanks well on the trees above the riverbanks um eating 
And you also have the Tabin Wildlife Reserve, um, also located in Sabah, Malaysia. And that shelters many species and was really created um, in 1984 to preserve um, that specific area's wildlife. And it also happens to be the release point of orangutans from the Sepalak Rehabilitation Center. So you know you have active orangutans in that area. Otherwise, that covers orangutans for you. Thank you all for taking the time and listening to this first episode of The Wildlife Room. We went again through African bush elephants, polar bears, and Bornean orangutans and really hit three major species within wildlife conservation. Sticking around for episode two, we're going to hit a little lesser species. We do have a really big one going to be in there, but a um, really big U.S. native will lead us off. Otherwise, again, just thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this first episode of The Wildlife Room. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Wildlife Room. Again, if you want to find me, my Instagram is DJP Wildlife Photography. And if you'd like to send me an email, my email is DJP Wildlife Photography at gmail.com. Again, thank you. And wherever you are, have a nice morning, a nice afternoon, or a nice night. Goodbye.